Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Coming up, farm reporter Harry Siemens on China now putting a stop to all shipments of Canadian canola. Friday fun day with Fiona Odlum and... Dr. Cyrus Dirksen makes a house call. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. But I want to get Harry Siemens on here. Our ag reporter friend. His website is SiemensSays.com. Harry, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Another big story uh, that is uh, developing, and we found out this morning that uh, Chinese importers have stopped buying Canadian canola seed, leaving major companies searching for markets in other countries. Earlier this month, of course, we know that Beijing suspended canola imports from just one company, a Winnipeg company, Richardson International, following allegations it had found hazardous organisms in the product. This latest development comes as China and Ottawa are locked in a diplomatic dispute, of course, that began with December's arrest of the head of Huawei or a senior executive with with Huawei in Vancouver. And that, of course, was at the request of the U.S. What do you make of this, Harry? You know, it's a very sad day for farmers and the agricultural industry in particular across Western Canada, across right across Canada. Because uh, I remember the first person I reached out to when, when this initially broke out it was Jerry Ritz, a former minister of ag. And he's still keeping his tabs on it. He says, Harry, this is just the beginning. He says they should be in China. They should be negotiating. We have no ambassador. We have a new ag minister. And we have a, a prime minister that I'm not sure what, what his take is on all of this. But at the same time, we... Uh, it's it's a sad day because the canola prices are going to drop, drop, and drop. We're only, what, 40 days, 45 days away from spring planting. A lot of decisions have been made. And, uh, and so before it was just one company. Now it's all companies. And, and we, you know, canola is still the biggest cash crop that we grow across Western Canada. We have crushers, uh, probably four or five around the, York and Saskatchewan area. We have a big one, Bungie, here at, in Altona. And then uh, there's others in between. And so it's a huge, like, of all the canola we grow, uh, 50% of it is processed at home, and then it's sold as uh, added value. Now, when they stop uh, all products, you know, it's just really, really a, a very uh, sad day for Canadian agriculture. Now, obviously, we're keeping an eye on uh, the flood situation, the flooding that we may see. And I had Bill Campbell on from Keystone Ag Producers the other day, and we were we were talking about this. As you mentioned, uh, decisions have been made already about what crops might be seeded. Is it too late for most canola growers out there, or or what's your sense when you talk to them? Because I know you're really plugged into all the growers. No, it's it's no, it's it's not too late. It's never too late until you put it in the ground. It's just that farmers like to be planning ahead, and, 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 and so much of it is based on rotation. Like, you can't grow canola on canola on canola. You can't grow soybeans on soybeans on soybeans year after year. You've got to rotate for a minimum of three years. And so that's the biggest factor is, and then cash crop. I mean, it looked like before all of this happened that canola 
you know, it's really been a, a, a not only a stable crop, it's been a staple crop. It's been when, when other things were going uh, uh, not so good, canola always was there because it was a good cash crop. It's a human food, the canola oil and so forth. It's a meal for animal consumption. So it's, it's a big staple. No, we can always change, but there's got to be markets and it's got to make sense for the farmer. Well, and the rotation. Yeah, and I know when we had uh, Richardson on, they were saying that they're looking to other Asian markets to try and, uh, you know, uh, bring up the rear on this. But I, I guess we'll see if that happens. Uh, do you get the sense that maybe canola is just the beginning? If this dispute continues between us and uh, and China, could other uh, crops be involved? What else do we send them? That's the other second point that Jerry Ritz made in, in my interview with him. He says this could be just the first shoe to drop. We've got pork, we've got beef, we've got other products that, that we're shipping to China. And so all of a sudden you've got four or five major commodities, not only canola, but you've got uh, you know, the, the livestock sector. So, uh, and, and all of that affects uh, the bottom line of the farmer. When you take the demand away from one of your major crops, you know, it just really hurts all the way across, not only it doesn't drop the price. It just drops other things. So uh, before you go here, Harry, give me your final thoughts on this. Do we wait and see? Uh, does Ottawa need to step in and do something here for growers? Uh, tell us what needs to happen at the grassroots level here. Well, at the grass, first off, the third point that Jerry Ritz made with me, he says the day that they announced that there was uh, they were stopping the shipments from Richardson, he says, if, if When he was in situations like that, if he had been the minister, number one, his front men would be in China, boots walking, getting meetings going. He would follow up, and they would make sure that they would do things and get things resolved. That hasn't happened because we don't have the ambassador. At the grassroots level, I think uh, farmers are always resilient, but uh, this certainly will put a damper going into the spring seeding, although there are other, other alternatives, but we'll have to wait and see. Harry, thanks for always being available to us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Harry Siemens, he is an ag reporter. Great website, SiemensSays.com. It's Friday Fun Day with Fiona. Fiona Odlum uh, joins us here on Fridays between 1.30 and 2. And it, it, we really try and have fun and talk about fun stuff, Fiona. Mm-hmm. But you are uh, living now and working now in the province of Saskatchewan. Give us a perspective yeah. on this. Uh, from our our neighboring province, how are are people reacting to the eight year sentence there? Um, well, number one, everyone knew that today was the day that the sentencing was coming down. And yeah. when you walk around Saskatoon, which is really close to Melfort, everybody has a Humboldt shirt on today. Mm. Everybody has it, and everyone plans on wearing green on April 6th, the day of the crash. And so it's still very raw and present here in Saskatchewan, especially Saskatoon, where so many of the EMS people went as the first responders to that scene that terrible night. Um, in terms of the sentencing and the reaction and the temperature of, of, the, of the community right now, Everyone, um, I mean, let's face it, there was going to be no res- like sentencing that was going to make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Um, what everyone was immediately relieved about was when he pled guilty back in December. Right. And 
then took the, all the family out of having to have to sit and go through a trial like that. So there are there are definitely some families today that were outside of the courtroom that were upset with the eight years. And it is a hard case to sentence for where there's no precedent set for this. And this yeah. is precedent setting. And it's difficult. I know that um, some families have been already to the point where they've reached closure and acceptance. And the fact that um, Sidhu has accepted responsibility for it, that was enough for them. Um, but I think it's also really important that this all wrapped up before the one-year anniversary. Right. And Which is that, pretty you know, incredible is when you think about incredible. it. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, you know, this, the, like, the, the court say was a makeshift court. Like, there's nothing here that has ever needed anything like this. This is so unprecedented. And, and the fact that it got wrapped up so timely is, is great. And he, more healing can happen. And, yeah. and I think, um, I think that's just what everyone is looking for right now. And mm -hmm. I mean, this man's life is also forever ruined. And yeah, we've been talking a bit altered. about that. And, yeah. and I don't, I don't, I really don't want that to be the focus, but today is sentence day. It's yeah. eight years for him. Yeah. And, and listen, yeah. uh, horrible, incredible, uh, mm -hmm. things happened. 16 people lost their lives. Many were injured. Yeah. But at the end of the day, in my mind, anyhow, it was a mistake. Now, it was a very deadly mistake, and right. there needs to be a penalty paid. And and then, yes. you know, we can talk about whether eight is the right number or not. Uh, but, yeah, just um, ah, it's just it's tragic all around. It is absolutely tragic. And I know that a lot of I've, I've spoken to so many truck drivers in the last year and and there's so many thoughts on the driving, like the licensing, the training, the inspections, how much um, how much that played a factor in this. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need to make our roads safer. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe some drivers can call in and and talk about the pressures, because I know that some of them have spoken to me privately about the pressures of like, you know, you have this load and you have to get it to this destination in this amount of time. Right. So if there's a tarp flapping and you're stressed about, I've got to make this deadline or I'm going to get penalized and those pressures, those are, those are real factors. And that was a real factor here. The tarp was undone. He was distracted by the tarp. He didn't see the stop sign. Yeah simple as that. Yeah, you know, and, um, and maybe as we head to a break here in a second, I'll, I'll play a, a clip of Terry Shaw from the Manitoba Trucking Association. He was on the start this morning with McLean McGeary McNabb, and he's basically saying what he has, has said many times, and I'll play that in a second, but I want to talk about a word that you used. We just talked to a global news reporter in Melfort. She used the word, and I'm going to talk in about an hour from now with Dr. Cyrus Dirksen about the word closure. Is there ever closure, do you think, is something like a sentence, an eight-year sentence today, closure for any of these moms and dads or other family members or friends when somebody they loved lost their life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. And uh, I can only speak from for myself about our own personal family tragedy yeah. where um, years ago... Um, my grandfather was found on his front lawn and he was dead. And 
there was a sense that he had been attacked and the house had been robbed and that it was a home invasion and he died and the police didn't investigate. This wasn't in Canada. And there's always been this lingering thought, well, what were his final moments? We'll never, ever, ever know mm. because we can't get closure. And so it bothers me. And it's, it's, I've never gone back to his hometown because I don't want to go to the grocery store thinking that someone who may have done this to him is there and not behind bars. So I think closure is absolutely important, a hundred percent important. And, um, yeah, like, even when you break up with someone and you dump them, yeah. you want that face-to-face closure, don't well, you? Well, sure, there's there's like, levels, there's yeah. levels, and, and yeah, levels. A, a, yeah. A, a, absolutely, yeah. And yeah. I think yeah. you're right, too, when you said earlier that, that by him saying, yes, I take responsibility for that, that made it easier for the, yes. fam- for the families and the loved Absolutely. ones of these people that were killed and, and injured. You know, I love you so much, Fiona. You're such a cool person that you can come on the air and talk about someone else's tragedy and share your own tragedies. Man, that's that um, that's really special, and I, I love you a lot for that. Hey, I'm a professional oversharer, and, you know, like, I wouldn't share these things if I didn't love you back and know that yeah. the stuff I'm going to say is going to be received the way it's intended, and... You know, yeah, I miss you. Don't make me cry. No, no, don't cry. We got a bunch of stuff we're going to talk to Dr. Cyrus about, but I wanted to play another clip here to kind of get us into this conversation. Once again, uh, this is the wife of the coach, the humble coach, uh, uh, Terry Hogan, that uh, died in that crash. Her name is Christina Hogan, and this is kind of what we're going to talk to Dr. Cyrus about. Take a listen. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that from here we can maybe um, move forward. I think we're also looking forward to the sixth being done and not everything having to be, if you hear the name Humble Runcos, everything is a, a news, a press release. So, you know, which is, we understand, but, you know, that, that's difficult. That's, it's hard for us. So I think this is one step and then... April 6th is another step, and we will try to move on from there. Dr. Cyrus, good afternoon. So before we get into some of the regular stuff we want to talk about, I we're talking, we're using the word closure a lot. She's, mm-hmm. She said in there about moving on. Yep. Um, I can't imagine losing a loved one in an yep. accident like this, uh, although some people don't even think we should be calling it an accident, but that's another conversation. Um, is there such a thing as closure? I think that people do move towards something that you might conceptualize as closure. It is a helpful term. It's not perfect. and uh, But people have trouble getting there. It's not necessarily a destination that everybody should just be expecting to get to. And I don't think that people should be expecting to get to a place called closure after going through a, a system you know, like, like our justice system. I do think it's important that we have a justice system. I think that it's important that we take steps like uh, convictions and sentencing and things like that. And I, I think it is helpful for victims, uh, but it's not perfectly helpful. Uh, normally what happens when people experience trauma is the world stops making sense. 
And the justice system is basically designed, or part of its design, is to help the world make sense again. If something bad happens, there's a response. Does it fix everything? No. And that's the most common thing you hear after a, a sentencing like this is, well, it doesn't bring my, my loved one back again. It doesn't actually solve the problem. But if we didn't do this, if we didn't have a justice system that tried to make sense, that tried to do something to repair the damage, it likely would be worse. The world would make less sense. And that incremental help in making things make sense again wouldn't be there for us. But I think for some of the parents that lost their children or mm-hmm. the people that lost loved ones in this crash, they might not be happy with that eight-year sentence. It might set them That's back. Right. It might That's make right. it worse for them. It's an interesting thing. They looked at the death penalty, which is like the ultimate, right? You know, it's this ultimate justice And it helped people get to closure at a rate of about 2.5%. That's how successful it was. And about 20% of people who had their offender in their case receive the death penalty say it had no effect at all. So there is this idea that greater punishment will bring more closure. And maybe to an extent that's true, but it's not true in the absolute sense. If we gave him a death penalty... Uh, as I'm sure there may be some people who believe should happen, um, it likely wouldn't bring this closure that we're hoping for. So that's kind of an illusion, uh, a mirage potentially. It might be incrementally helpful to some degree. I don't want to say it's not, but it's not like this panacea where all of a sudden if we could get to this ultimate justice, it would fix things because ultimately that wouldn't bring the person back either. And uh, so we, we kind of have this justice system that has an attempt and that's important, but it's not where you know closure comes from in the big sense. Interesting stuff. So only about two or three percent yeah. uh, say they've reached closure, closure after something like a death penalty. And even hmm. then people will say it's not enough. That there should be harsher than that in some way, maybe some painful kind of death. Right. It, it's it's and then even that would likely be another mirage on the on the end where that wouldn't bring the person back. It's nothing's going to do that. Nothing's going to bring that that uh, that closure completely in that way. It's it's never going to be satisfying. Um, but it is important that we do something. It's important that we try to make sense of it, that we take some kind of action. And that's what, that's what, what today was. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is the liquor store. Uh, we got beefed up security yesterday. We heard about what they're going to do to beef up security. People are literally walking into liquor stores. They're loading up their arms with alcohol and they're walking <laughs> oh, out. And uh, I think I've got a clip here of uh, Police Chief Danny Smythe. Let me let me play this. Yeah, here it is. Let me play this, and then I want to get your thoughts because I really want to yeah. know the psychology of this. Here's what Danny Smythe, the police chief, said yesterday about these robberies. I haven't seen social norms totally disregarded like this in a long, long time. Is that what it is, social norms that are just out the window? There's this idea that when things happen en masse, uh, that there's good people out there who are doing bad things, who have never done bad things before. When you look at rioting, um, like you're suggesting, what you actually find is that it's not everybody who's engaging in the riot, even though it might look like it because you have this like much larger number of people engaging in crime in this smaller period of time, which is what we're seeing here. But it's actually still a group of people who are kind of marginalized, who are more, who aren't working towards the betterment of society in a larger sense. And there's factors that contribute to that happening, but it is happening at a greater level for sure. And this is, I have to say, this is terribly interesting to me that it's happening in this way. It's like almost like a slow-moving train wreck where you're seeing some of the things that might be happening in a riot happen in a very slow, kind of incremental way rather than that, in that explosion that you normally see in a riot. Like, for example, some of the things, what we're missing here is a triggering event. I don't know what the triggering event is other than the fact that maybe your friend got away with it or you saw that somebody got away with it or you learned that the Liquor Mart has this policy. That's maybe the trigger. That's it right there. Yeah. People started hearing about yes. this. 
uh, as the media reported on it, and it became a bigger thing. And then now we're not just hearing about it at mm-hmm. liquor stores. We're hearing about it at other stores. But the other factors that normally contribute to this in a riot are things like chronic unemployment, uh, diminished identity or feeling like you're less than, um, powerlessness, and in a, in a riot, increased communication. Now, what we're probably seeing is increased communication. Like, all of a sudden, everybody knows about these policies where in the, in the past, maybe they weren't as obvious. But it is still a group of people within a society that's suffering in some way that are engaging this at an increased level because of some perceived opportunity or justice. Like, they're, they're doing it because there's some kind of justice. In this case, probably more of an opportunity. So, I don't want, I don't want people to feel, and I bet, I haven't looked it up in this case, but I bet if you looked at it, you're not finding... All of a sudden, people who are typically, you know, paying their taxes and doing good things for society, all of a sudden doing something completely out of character and shoplifting at the liquor mart. What you're probably seeing are people who are in this category of feeling like, feeling the effects of greater unemployment, feeling the effects of a diminished uh, social group, and engaging in that because there's some kind of opportunity in there. And that is what I would be expecting, although I don't actually know in this case. Yeah. And then there's the meth, uh, the meth connection, right? A lot of people sure. say this stuff is happening yeah. because of meth. People are trying to get that few dollars for their mm-hmm. next high. And so that yeah. obviously is playing a role. That could be, be another triggering sure. factor that's kind of happening alongside this. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting to watch kind of as people pick up on something like this. And again, you're almost seeing the effects of this kind of slow moving riot happening in society. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately for these people, they, there's very good camera systems apparently, and, and it's very unlikely that they're going to get away with it for long. Uh, but there might be that perceived availability of of these products just sitting there and, and seemingly no consequences to it. Yeah. Anyhow, very interesting stuff. All right, let's move on to the stuff we had planned. That's sure. uh, We're dealt with the news of the day there. Um, the unintended risk of playing it safe. By the way, uh, Dr. Cyrus is here every Friday between 2.30 and 3, but you can find him all the time at doc, somebody uh, actually after you left last week somebody said how do I get a hold of Dr. Cyrus drcyrus.com d r s y r a s.com real easy the unintended risk of playing it safe that is our first headline the the main way that people manage uh, anxiety is by avoidance and unfortunately that's something that actually increases fear sometimes i say Uh, The cure for fear is fear itself. What you have to do in order to overcome your anxiety is actually to face your fear, uh, get back on the horse, so to speak, those kinds of sayings. And if you don't do those things, if you actually engage in safety behaviors, what you learn is to continue to fear. You don't have anything, no evidence that it's actually safe because you're not doing it. Or you have these safety behaviors, like what this article is talking about, like checking the door, checking the stove, or things like this. You have these things that give you this illusion that they're necessary for actually maintaining your safety. So the main thing you actually have to do is face your fear. And oftentimes this is what I'm uh, counseling people to do in therapy is, is to go out and face their fear where everybody around them is helping them to avoid their fear. I'm actually saying, well, actually we have to do this. I'm sorry. But we actually have to go and you have to experience a lot of discomfort. It's a very painful kind of therapy because anxiety is kind of painful. And it's another definition is just pain. And, but you do it incrementally and you, and you face it and it will diminish over time. So obviously you can get a professional's help to mm-hmm. deal with this yes. stuff, but is that something individuals can do on their own? I can say, I hate spiders. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get yes. within 10 feet of a spider, then yep. I'm going to go five feet, then yep. I'm going to go three feet, and I yep. can do that kind of stuff on 
on my own, or is it always with the help of someone like I would, you? I would say the vast majority of the time, vast, vast majority of the time that people are actually doing these things, they're not doing it explicitly. They don't know what they're doing, like from a you know clinical research yeah. point of view, and they're not doing it formally. They're not doing it with professional. They're just going out there and saying, I got to get over this thing. And then they go out and they do the thing that they're afraid of. And over time, maybe they notice, you know, in a, in a conscious way, or they just end up doing it more easily. And later on, they kind of notice later, but they just end up getting over their fear mm-hmm. on their own. And uh, yeah, so that's the vast majority yeah. of the way that people actually do this. And sometimes they do need a bit of kind of extra help, you know, from a professional uh, to actually do it. One of the main things that people do, though, to decide is, do I actually need to get near this spider? We have lots of fears out there that don't need to be treated. Right. Um, if you're, a, but if you work in a zoo, yeah, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. you, <laughs> right. you might need to go. Am out. I going to see a spider every day? <laughs> yeah. Chances are at the zoo or at the lake, yeah, maybe at the yeah. cottage, you're going to see a, sh- a spider every if day. You, if you do renovations on cabins, then yeah. yes, you will need right. to get over your fear of spiders. <laughs> yeah. But is there also not the risk though of trying to deal with a fear mm. and you fail and now you've made it worse? Okay, definitely. So let's say that you go and you're afraid of the, let's say you're afraid of flying and you say, today I'm just going to go to the airport and you go to the airport and you get there and your fear spikes and you leave right away. Yes, you've now unfortunately either maintained your fear or potentially even made it worse because right. now what, you've, what have you taught yourself? Going to the airport is terrible. I, I went there, it was awful, and then I left and I felt better. I've yeah. punished airports right. in myself and I have rewarded leaving them. So what you want to do is you want to go to the airport, that's the same, or do something that you can maintain over a long period of time and then you need to stay there until while you're at the airport – you can relax. Then you are starting to overcome your fear. If you can stay at the airport long enough that you just get tired uh, because you're so anxious, you just get tired and you begin to uh, relax, even though you don't want to. You might still hate airports, but you're now relaxed in the presence of an airport. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.